Colby Daniels Podcast, presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Check out their line of natural medicine products, including Kratom, CBD, or Delta 8. If you're looking for something to help with pain, anxiety, or just an opioid alternative, Artisan Botanicals has what you're looking for. Plus, right now, we're saving you 15% when you order online. abotanicalcompany.com. Use the discount code COLBYSHOW, and you'll save 15% off your online order abotanicalcompany.com. Once again, Kratom, CBD, Delta 8, whatever it is you're looking for. Or if you have any questions, 405-458-9699. They have a staff dedicated to helping you live a better life. So once again, Artisan Botanicals, abotanicalcompany.com. All right, it is Monday. It's draft week. It is post-spring game. Uh, We've got a lot happening this week. Also, want to let you guys know, on Thursday, first round of the NFL Draft, Aaron Davis and I will be at Chalk and Chisholm Creek broadcasting live throughout the entire first round. We're going to start the broadcast at 6.30, 30 minutes before the draft starts at 7, and we are going to give analysis and react to all 32 picks in the first round. So this is going to be a great time. If you're looking for somewhere to watch the game, come hang out with us at Chalk and Chisholm Creek. Plus... There's going to be an incredible party happening. We're going to be giving away draft swag, free draft swag. So come in, grab some draft swag, draw a draft name out of the hopper. And if you draw one of the top 10 picks in the NFL draft, you're going to win a prize. The person that draws Trevor Lawrence's name, who's going to be the number one pick to the Jaguars, they're going to win a Baker Mayfield autographed canvas print. This is a really cool grand prize. Uh, So again, don't miss your opportunity to come hang out, watch the draft, get some free draft swag and win prizes for the top 10 picks in this NFL draft. It's going to be a great time, and we look forward to seeing you on Thursday night at Chalk. All right, talking Oklahoma spring game and the NFL draft, specifically the Dallas Cowboys draft, here's my buddy with 24-7 Sports for Oklahoma, OUinsider.com, Colin Kennedy. Colin Kennedy is my guest from OUinsider.com, OU 24-7 Sports. Colin, happy Monday, my friend. What's happening? Happy Monday to you, my man. Hopefully you are doing well. I'm a little toasted, by the way. I don't know if y'all can tell. <laughs> so we're going to see how well this goes, because it feels like there's 100 lighters held to the back of my neck. I don't know what kind of distraction that's going to provide, but I'm excited to dive into all things spring football and NFL draft minutes. Hey, fun. man, it was a nice weekend. I'm, I'm sure, uh, like me, you were uh, suntanning while watching the spring game Saturday afternoon. Absolutely. And then once you get into the Houston sun on that Sunday, it is just ruthless. So I made the mistake of not wearing sunblock again. I don't know when the hell I'm going to learn, but I have to eventually because I already feel like I just plastic. <laughs> and to those listening, unfortunately, they're not going to uh, to get to see the red version of you. But uh, look, it's you know what? You are in full fan mode. Yeah, absolutely. See, let's the just, good let's, news is yeah. we have a podcast side of this, right. so there's the opportunity for people to see me looking like a lobster. Right. So that's the good side of this thing. <laughs> well, look, for Saturday afternoon, uh, the weather, I think the, the football gods in Norman were like, you know what? These people have been through enough. We're going we're gonna to cut down the wind. We're going to let the sun shine. The temperature is going to be absolute perfection. I mean, it's very rare in this state that I feel like you get a day where the weather is just perfect. And the fact that there wasn't a spring game in 2020, I, I, I 100% believe the football gods just said, you know what? Here you go, people. We're going to do you a I solid. Lo- oh, man. I-, I loved Eric Gray's quote after the game where he said, basically, he stepped onto the field for the first time at OU, he grabbed his helmet, put it on. He was like feeling the sun and the perfect air. And he was like, 
this is what football is supposed to be. I, I thought that was just perfectly encapsulating what everyone felt in Norman, Oklahoma on Saturday because you hit the nail on the head, man. No spring game last year. The awful weather that we've been through in the state just led up to this point. I think everyone had a great appreciation for it. On Do Saturday. you remember the Kyler Murray spring game when there were like 80-mile-an-hour winds and nobody could throw the football? I did a post-game show for that, and – like, literally every phone call was like, can these guys throw the ball? Are they terrible passers? And I'm like, nobody could – Brett Favre can't throw the ball in that wind. I, I, dude, I remember it vividly because I'm standing on the field <laughs> and I felt like the, the cartoon of SpongeBob and, and them run, walking through the wind with the pizza box. Yeah. It was just relentless that Brutal. day. And then for everyone after the game would be like, well, I don't know if these two can throw the ball well enough in the system. It's like, guys – there was basically the equivalent of a tornado just constantly coming at us. The ball's not going anywhere, so just accept. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say in our pregame that day, like everybody go home. Like we're not. This isn't going to teach us anything. Nobody's going to get any enjoyment out of this. Everybody's just going to be miserable and left with more questions when it's over. It's not serving any purpose. I mean, it was a money grab that day. Call it what it was, because you pay to take it to sit in the wind for a couple of hours. So, congrats to everyone. We got fooled. Well, maybe, maybe a money grab, or maybe just a way to try and recoup some of the money that they spent on on Trace Adkins that year. So, maybe, maybe that's what it was. They had spent so much money on the entertainment, they were like, "We got to get some of this back." There's levels to everything, Colby. There's levels to everything. There you go. There you go. Uh, all right. Well, I, I was I was going to start with uh, the quarterback situation, but you mentioned a name that that I think is really intriguing as far as this coming season, Eric Gray. When I, I loved this guy at Tennessee, when I heard the news that he was coming to Oklahoma, my initial thought was perfect fit for what Lincoln Riley wants to do. And when you look at how he complements what they already have. It's even better, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if this guy became the guy, and that's saying a lot because I'm I'm at the front of the Kennedy Brooks line. When when Kennedy Brooks and Sermon and Ramondre were all there, I was saying Kennedy Brooks is the guy. He's the number one. But I think Eric Gray is maybe a better fit for what Lincoln Riley wants to do, and certainly they're going to use both guys. But we got to see a little bit of what he's capable of. Um, this guy's going to be very exciting in this offense. You know, it's it's hilarious because. I've been the Eric Gray apologist for a while as well. I'm right there with you in the Eric Gray fan club because I think people also forget like when the news was announced that he was joining the team, there wasn't a ton of excitement at the time, to be honest. like A lot of fans were like, well, do we really need him? Should we save the scholarship spot for a freshman running back? And at the time, I was like, guys, this dude was one of the top like all-purpose SEC yardage kind of guys in an offense that basically went – run on first down, run on second down, run on third down, punt. Like the yeah. entire defense knew, hey, Eric Gray is going to get the ball like two or three times on this drive. So let's just go ahead and make sure we watch him. And he still racked up a ton of yardage in the Southeastern Conference. But now he transitions over into this offense. And we know, again, he has the ability to not only impact the game in the run side of things, but he's a lethal weapon when it comes to the passing game. And that's what you saw. I mean, hell, the first play of the game, the guy catches a pass on the perimeter for a first down. And so that's why kind of the buzz around Eric Gray is that, I mean, if he was already a highly productive SEC back in an offense that was extremely limited, what can his ceiling be in an offense that's going to capitalize on all of his strengths, not just right. one? So, I mean, plus you're talking about this guy getting an upgrade essentially on the offensive line. You mentioned some of the creativity. Lincoln Riley's going to be comfortable flexing him around. And, and Kennedy Brooks, too. Like, he has someone who can take some weight off of his shoulders – or also man the backfield 
as he's kind of flexed out into the slot or wide, however they want to use him at that time. So, man, I, I, I'm incredibly interested in what Eric Gray can provide going into the fall because there's just an opportunity for him to kind of – one of my takes is that, okay, the difference between production and impact is very relevant. You can produce at a high level, but you may not necessarily be impacting the game. You can impact at a high level without having t- a ton of statistics. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, Ramondre Stevenson provided both, and he did it in both the run game and the passing game. And with that presence gone, I think Eric Gray has the opportunity to replace both the production and the impact of a one Ramondre Stevenson, and I think he proved that on Saturday. Yeah, I, I love what he does in space, and, and Lincoln Riley finds ways to get his playmakers the ball in advantageous situations, and again, I mean, we saw a little bit of it Saturday. Um, I like the combination of Kennedy Brooks, and I'm still a Kennedy Brooks fan. I think he's going to be one of the best backs in college football, but this guy is just going to add another wrinkle to the offense. When he gets in the game, defenses are going to have to pay attention to where he is, and especially you know when he gets the ball in space, expect big plays to happen. So the fascinating thing is one of my other sayings when it comes to Kennedy Brooks specifically is this dude makes eight yards look like four. I mean, it feels like every game when he was playing, he was averaging like 7.9 per carry. And everyone in the stadium is like, he's having an okay day. Right. But just his running style. You know what I mean? It's like it's like he's walking through the park. I mean, he's just really nonchalant kind of player, but he produces at such a high level. I'm there with you too. I mean, this guy coming out of Mansfield, Texas, an area – that I'm pretty familiar with, the dude had some of the highest yardage markers that we had seen in Texas high school football in a while. And then when he arrived on campus, everyone was just kind of like, meh, because he just doesn't do much in terms of the flash. Well, Eric Gray is going to provide that. I mean, the big plays, the burst, the surge, all those buzzwords that you want with a running back. I just think this is an incredible balance between the two. When you just talk about a guy that's going to move the chains and another guy who's going to get you those big plays down the field, whether it's with his legs or through the passing game. I'm fascinated by how the, the balance is going to be struck, though. And I think that the two-back set potential in Lincoln Riley's offense, I mean, that's fascinating. And I think defensive coordinators are going to have absolute nightmares about it once we get really into the season. Because I don't know how you stop both of them on the field, let alone <laughs> one or the other. Right. And if they're both on the field, that means you still have talented playmakers on the sidelines. And this has been the case since Lincoln Riley's been in, in Norman, but he's had such a wealth of big-time offensive playmakers. I feel like for, for years in postgame shows, I'm, I'm literally looking at the box score like, this guy needs more touches. This guy needs more touches. This guy needs more touches. There's only one football. And, and we haven't even hit the pass catchers yet. But again, like... What personnel package do you want to roll with? Because the the I mean the options are are pretty much unlimited. I mean, I mean we haven't even talked about you mentioned the receivers, the running backs. They still have one of the best tight end rooms in all of college football. I mean, Austin Stogner coming back is huge. Braden Willis is a guy that I love. Jeremiah Hall, I mean, that guy is might be a team captain come the fall. Like the number of personnel packages that Lincoln Riley could throw out at any one time could be completely foreign to a defensive coordinator, especially in the Big 12, you know, a conference that stereotypically sees a lot of wide receivers on the field at one time. I just think there's a fascinating kind of mix that he can strike with this group. And we haven't even seen the full arsenal. I mean, Mike Woods is coming from Arkansas. We're going to see another wave of freshmen coming in. I mean, and we're also waiting on another wave of transfers. There's still a potential for them to add even more weapons to the, the arsenal you're talking about. So, 
I, again, that was another thing that you walk out of the spring game saying, man, if this is what it's going to look like and we haven't even seen like the full potential of it, Lincoln Riley's offense come the 2021 season is going to be really fun to watch yet again. Is Mike Woods going to wear number eight at Oklahoma? You know, that's a great question. And <laughs> it's one that I feel is a little bit of a trap to answer. So we'll <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of numbers yeah. available in jerseys. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, like even with the zeros rocking and Eric Gray. So I don't know. I don't know what number he's going to pick, but I'm sure it'll be a good one. Yeah. I, the day that he announces the transfer, I mean, you see all the photoshops and I was like, you know, conspiracy theorists, like the Trajan Bridges thing happens. They bring in this guy that wore number eight at Arkansas. All the photoshops are of him in an Oklahoma uniform wearing number eight. Uh, hmm. Yep. Interesting scenario, but uh, it's a pretty easy template yeah, that they had. Yeah, huh? for sure, for sure. Um, all right, let's before we get to the pass catchers. I mean, I was going to start with the quarterbacks, and then you mentioned Eric Gray, so I, you know, I wanted to just kind of take a detour there because I, I really like what he brings to the offense. But finally, the first chance to see Caleb Williams uh, at at you know a collegiate level. Anybody that has eyes could see that the physical tools were there. I mean, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to watch him play high school football and be like, "Holy cow, this guy!" You know. The tools are off the charts great. Um, you know, it's it's always how do these guys adjust to the college game? How do they process information? Is the speed something that, that you know, throws them off? Whatever it is. But, man, this guy just looks the part, right? Like, he's back there and you're just like, that, I, he's a freshman? What? Like, it's just so seamless. I mean, there's a reason why he was the number one quarterback in the class. So, I don't know what else to say other than the fact that I, I did get some – feedback after the game from people saying, man, I didn't know he was that fast. I didn't know he could process information that quickly. Or I didn't know he had that kind of rocket arm. And then you kind of like provide the information that you know when you evaluate this guy through high school and everyone's like, that makes a lot of sense. Because this dude comes from a very competitive area of high school football out there in the D.C. area. He has basically trained in a private facility with a a number of private coaches, whether it be nutritionists, quarterback coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, for a couple of years now. Like he's been going through a collegiate style program as a high schooler for a couple of years in a very strong talent base. So then when he steps in to an Oklahoma offense and processes information quickly, it shouldn't be a shocker to anybody, especially because, I mean, when Lincoln Riley was recruiting the kid, they sat down and watched film all the time. So beforehand, like this guy knows what he's getting into. And when you know, also meet the kid in person, he's just an incredibly down-to-earth, hardworking, like outgoing individual. That infectious personality that assembled such a loaded recruiting class coming in. But now that he's in the locker room and he's applying that energy to the quarterback room, the film room, that's why he just – easily stood out on Saturday because he's had all the makeup and the tools and the attitude personality traits that you want in a quarterback. He just needed an opportunity to showcase that. And that's exactly what he did. So it was, it was a lot of fun seeing him go out there and prove why so many recruiting rankings had him as that top dog at the signal caller spot. And I just feel like, look, the spring game results should be taken with caution. I mean, I think it's always relevant to remind everyone of that. But you have to go ahead and sit here and say the future is in good hands whenever he takes over the position. Yeah, which, look, this year could be one play away at any given moment. I mean, that's the unique thing about him being the backup quarterback and coming into this situation. There have been other seasons where Oklahoma brings in a highly recruited quarterback, but 
He's not necessarily the number two on the depth chart. There's still somebody in line that has kind of waited their turn. May not ever be the starting, the future starting quarterback, but is a guy that obviously knows the system and is the next guy in line should they have to go to a backup type situation. He's thrown into that immediately because of the departure of, of basically all the other QBs in that room this offseason. And, and the other part of this too, and you, you brought up a great point. Spencer Rattler is obviously the guy, and we'll get into him. But – there could be anything that happens in a make-or-break season come the fall for Lincoln Riley in Oklahoma. And so just knowing that he has that guy, even as a true freshman, who can step in and kind of carry this team into the postseason expectations that it has, I think has to be incredibly relieving. The other part of this, too, is that four-game redshirt rule still allows you to utilize this guy in extra packages. Like, if you want to take Rattler off the field, talk some things over, and throw this guy out there— he can go make plays. He can help you win football games in meaningful minutes. That's a huge weapon when we talk about the arsenal earlier. I mean, they just have another option on the table in terms of going out and putting up offensive statistics. And, I mean, we saw that. Like, what, Chandler Morris scored the first touchdown in the Big 12 championship, right? So anything's on the table when it comes to Caleb freaking Williams. It's just another fascinating aspect of this when you talk about the potential for him to step in in his true freshman year should something go wrong or just come in in a couple of games and make some plays and help this team catapult itself towards the college football playoff. Anything can happen come the fall, but Caleb Williams is probably going to be prepared for it. Yeah, I, I just think there's a different preparation when you know you are the next guy versus, you know, mm -hmm. if this guy gets hurt, there's another guy that's been around here, and I'm the number three guy. And, you know, even, even if you know, like, I'm the next starting quarterback – if you're not the number two, I think there's just a different preparation and a different mentality. So the fact that he is the next guy in line and always one play away, I, I think is is great for him as far as, as just the mentality and getting ready to play and learning everything he needs to learn. I think it just accelerates that, that entire process. Oh, for sure. And, and you bring up a great point, too, is a lot of times true freshmen come in, they're not always expected to be big-time contributors, or they're maybe down the rotation at, like, receiver or defensive line, right? Like, Oklahoma has a number of those who have been sitting out for a while. I mean, Trajan Bridges, the guy you mentioned earlier, had still kind of been a guy who came in, heralded out of high school, and was kind of waiting his opportunity before a lot of dominoes fell. That's just going to be something that further furthers his development as the future of the Oklahoma quarterback room. I mean, he he's has to be prepared for anything to happen. And even, let's say, if he doesn't start a single game in 2021, he will have prepared as a starter throughout the entirety of the season. And then once ever he takes over, maybe even after this year, I mean, the guy has already put in the effort and the minutes and the time that you would typically see as a starting quarterback at the collegiate football level. So, again, it's another really interesting thing that you have to take into consideration as Caleb Williams develops through his Oklahoma career. If you are handicapping the preseason Heisman Trophy, is uh, Spencer Rattler one or two for you? He's one. I mean, I he's got to be one. I, if if Lincoln Riley can take Jalen Hurts and make him a Heisman Trophy finalist, I think we would all agree that Spencer Rattler's probably a little bit better of a quarterback. So I'm going to go ahead and take him as my top dog. Yeah, just a little just, bit just, might be a yeah. safe bet. Just a skosh. 
And, and a lot of the part of this too, I mean, he's, he's the guy that's coming back. And this is another thing that's really interesting when it comes to Oklahoma, whether it be the Heisman Trophy race or the college football playoff quest, is a lot of those big-name teams with those high-profile quarterbacks are kind of starting over. Like DJ Uyunglele at Clemson, Bryce Young at Alabama, CJ Stroud at Ohio State. There's a lot of fresh faces that have to establish their reputation. So knowing that and knowing that the Heisman Trophy is kind of just a quarterback award now, if Spencer Rattler is like one of the few guys returning at a big name institution in college football, you probably give him the slight edge there as well. So, yeah. no, I'm going to go ahead and favor Spencer Rattler, and I'd be comfortable putting some money down, too. Yeah, amen. And and look, I think it's it's him and Sam Howell if you're, if you're doing the preseason prediction. But UNC is going to lose more games than Oklahoma. And whether it's fair or not, that plays a big role in, in how people vote for that thing. Exactly. Winning and conference. I, there's a lot that goes into it. I, JT Daniels is another guy that obviously people have kind of thrown into that consideration. So I, I look at it as kind of those three when we talk about it being quarterback group. But you mentioned it. UNC could easily slip up in the ACC, a conference that's honestly getting a lot better in terms of competition level. And then I look at Georgia. I really like what Georgia can accomplish this season. I think that's a team that has a real chance to make some movement. Of course, I said that last year, and look what happened to them. They started Stetson Bennett for a couple of games, yeah. so what did I know? But at the same time... Hey, if they, if Jamie Newman plays, I think it's a completely different scenario. So See, that was my thing. Yeah. I thought Jamie Newman, JT Daniels, one of those yeah. guys gives Georgia yeah. a star quarterback. But little did I know that neither of them would play at that point. So that was pretty upsetting. But JT Daniels is going to play. We know that to be a fact. But losing George Pickens, in my opinion, kind of hurts him in the long run when, it sure. when you talk about Heisman Trophy standing because now Georgia kind of unproven at receiver. So if you're a quarterback in a system that's still honestly, if we want to talk like real, is going into year one under Todd Munkin because let's just throw ahead, go ahead and throw out last year as a, a transition into that new system. There's just a lot of now – hurdles that JT Daniels has to get over and so that is another thing that helps Spencer Rattler in terms of his pursuit of the Heisman Trophy. How are you feeling about this Oklahoma offensive line and uh, you know is is the five that we saw together going to be the five that you think starts the season or how do you kind of view that line? I I think so Uh, it's hard to kind of I want to go back and rewatch the film and really dive into how the offensive line fared It felt like there was a time period there, especially as the game went on, that there were some tackles for loss created or maybe a couple of sacks. But at the same time, I do felt like, if I I can remember correctly, Andrew Rame seemingly put some stuff together that was encouraging. I thought the guards looked a lot better in terms of their weight management, which would only fare well as they go into the offseason. The tackle position is still really interesting to me. But again, I want to dive into the film before I make any definitive decision on those two bookend guys because we've heard that Wanye Morris, while very highly covered in the transfer portal, has a ways to go in terms of his development and fundamentals. And then, I mean, like you talk about Eric Swenson, who feels like the Perry Ellis of OU football now. I mean, like what is he going to do in what feels like his 10th season in Norman? You've got the young guys at tackle that could make some some impact. I do feel like what you saw on Saturday – will be OU's front five. And again, it's an offensive line that could honestly direct the season for OU, but there's still some time to progress. And I do feel like, again, spring game results should be taken with caution. So I think it was a decent outing for them up front, but there was going to be a lot to improve as they go into the offseason. 
All right, let's hit the pass catchers. A year ago, I felt like Austin Stogner was the guy that should have, have been maybe the, the featured pass catcher uh, within the offense, and, and especially given you know all the, the moving parts for Oklahoma's offense a year ago. Um, I still, going into this year, think he's just a mismatch every single Saturday, so he's got to be a guy that, that is featured, and obviously the health plays a role there as well. But when you look at the, the receiving the receivers as, as pass catchers, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know where you start. It's like the talent is there. Maybe the consistency isn't there. Uh, at this point, we're talking about Hazelwood and, and Weiss going into year number three, so they ha- they have to take steps this season. Or the bottom line is they're going to get passed, right? Marvin Mims, I thought, was the best receiver a year ago. Uh, we, we obviously saw the highlight play from Mario Williams and, and the talk about what he could potentially be in year one. Um, you know, you can't forget about, like you mentioned, all the, the H-back type players that can catch the ball out of the backfield. Drake Stoops gets his scholarship. And and look, you know, if, as far as just pass catchers, I, he's probably one of the best five you have. So, uh, you know, I think he probably gets lost in the mix of, like, who you're talking about getting on the football field. But nobody really does what he does for this team. So, um, I, I think this is a really interesting situation for this group. And, and again, it's a great problem to have. I, I think it's fascinating because I think a lot of Oklahoma fans or analysts would agree. Like Drake Stoops, compared to a lot of these high-profile four-star, five-star recruits, is probably the guy that you favor being on the field when you need a consistent outing or production in a game. Right, like Absolutely. he proved that against Texas. He proved that a number of times last year. That's why he's on scholarship now. And so having a guy like him, it's just it's crazy to me how he has just elevated himself to being one of those primary presences in a receiver room full of guys who came out of high school with all their flowers. First, I thought Jaden Hazelwood just being on the field might have been one of the biggest aspects of the spring game for Oklahoma. Like just having him there run routes was massive. And I think you saw that confidence immediately elevate with that ridiculous one-handed grab that he had. But you just saw him kind of ease back into the game flow of things. And obviously he came on towards the end of last year and tried to get back into the thick of things. But I, I still felt like he was a little bit hindered in terms of his game development. And so just having Jaden out there, don't, making him go up against people in a live setting was huge. And, because you're really going to need that guy come the fall. You mentioned Mario Williams. The guy's a stud. I, I mean, I don't know what else. I, he did have that fumble on like the jet sweep or whatever, which was a little bit disappointing because you feel like he probably does something with all his speed if he gets the ball. Yeah. But I, I feel like, again, we've heard so much about him in this spring, what he can be as a playmaker. I think that there's a really high ceiling for him, especially – interesting because he's a little bit limited in terms of height or weight or all that. But again, he he's going to have time to further his development in the weight room and in the film room. And I think come the fall, this guy, especially given the, the, the current state of the OU wide receiver room and how there's a lot of shuffling pieces, he could easily elevate himself into that Marvin Mims role where he just bursts onto the scene as a true freshman and becomes that guy that they look to in do or die situations. Now, of course, he's going to have to Hurdle Marvin Mims, who you mentioned, pretty darn good in his own right, and I think he's a stud. I mean, covering him at Frisco Lone Star out of high school was so much fun. And I still remember watching this guy make massive plays, not just with his hands or his legs, but with his brain. 
And coming out of high school, again, he was so highly productive, too. I mean, the guy had, like, the highest yardage marker for a receiver in Texas high school football history or something. And he comes in and surprises everybody. Well, now no one's going to be caught off guard with this guy being who he is, puts up 100 yards in a football game. So it's a really interesting group. And, again, I always like to mention that Mike Woods dude that's coming in is pretty darn good. Like, this receiving group – the ceiling is always there. But when you talk about just young, unproven, but high potential guys, it might be one of the more fascinating receiver rooms that I think Lincoln Riley has had in his time in Norman. Because you just, we don't really know what it's going to look like, but I feel like we all kind of feel it's going to be really good. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I go back to a year ago, and I think, you know, we were looking at that group, and I think at that time, you know, going into their sophomore year, the trio of Weiss and Bridges and Hazelwood, we were like, all right, you know, they, they went through their freshman year. Now it's kind of opened up where any one of these three can kind of become the guy. Uh, and, you know, I, understandably, you know, Bridges didn't play for the majority of the season. Hazelwood had his own issues. Theo Weiss at times looked terrific, uh, yeah. but it never really felt like anybody other than Marvin Mims established themselves as, as maybe a go-to guy. So it was a little bit easier for him to maybe jump in without the expectations, whereas with this year and the Mario Williams situation – you know, we're all kind of like, who's going to take on that role? Who's going to accept that they are the go-to guy? Uh, because it, it just feels more open, whereas last year it kind of felt like we just anointed one of those three guys to kind of become that, and it never really took place that way. It, it almost likens to me, and this is a little bit of a weird analogy, but like, you know how for a while, like, say like the Denver Nuggets or various basketball teams that entered the playoffs would have just a really solid roster? of just like team kind of guys. Right. And you were like, how are they winning so many games without that true alpha, that number one? Yeah. That's what could be OU's receiving room right. going into the fall. Like it, it might be okay if you don't have that number one standout receiver because you have so many guys that if you get the ball to, they can make plays in space or they can take a traffic catch over the middle. It's just a lot of like role guys right now, and you hope that one of them elevates their role to that number one caliber receiver. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with having a deep rotation on the perimeter, especially when you have a guy like Spencer Rattler who has the ability to throw the ball 45, 50 times and often still be efficient. So it's really interesting to me how this group is going to gel, especially considering, again, they're all still relatively young. Yeah. But if that one vocal and productive presence is established with so many other solid role player kind of guys, like this is a, a group that could really be tough to cover for Big 12 defenses in the fall. All right, let's switch over to the defensive side of the football. Uh, on Saturday, Mike Steely and I did a pre-show, and we spent probably the first 20 or 25 minutes talking about defense, which in the past would have been absolutely insane. I mean, I've done pregame shows over the last five years where – We didn't even mention the defense one time in like a two-hour pregame show because, like, what are you going to say? You know, at this point, you're you're talking about legitimate weapons in all three levels. It's it's unbelievable the job that has been done, and now the expectations going into this year. I I expect them to be dominant. I think this is going to be a really good defense, and I don't think it's it's unrealistic for anybody to have the same sort of expectations for what we watched a year ago. 
So I'm going to go ahead and plug a, a co-worker peer of mine right now in Josh Pate, the director of video for 24-7 Sports. Go check him out. But he had a really interesting quote or kind of a, a similarity here that I thought was fascinating. And I'm going to try and get it on par as possible. But basically he said, you know, the reputation when you talk about OU football from a national perspective is that, well, they're never really going to have a good defense or they're not going to have a unit that's going to be able to win them games in the postseason. But he, he basically said, let's say you were to take this OU defense and take the jerseys off and put on like a Florida uniform or a Georgia uniform. It might look really similar to what the actual Florida and Georgia type defenses are playing in the SEC, those types of units that have been heralded for so long. Now, obviously, Florida had a down year. The Georgia thing is something. But, like, those are both programs that have a high reputation on yeah. that side of the ball. And if you were to insert the personnel that Oklahoma has into those programs, right now, it might honestly be a little bit of an upgrade. I know for one of those two teams, the argument could certainly be made. And you think about that, and it's like, how crazy is that, that this is now happening? Like, we can say that in, like, year two or three under Alex Grinch depending on how you want to timetable it. Like this guy has immediately elevated this defense to a, a type of group that could go plug and play in any conference in college football and help you win football games. I, I think that can't be overstated enough. And I think, again, you saw that defense prove why it's so vaunted. I mean, they, they held the number one offense to a number of field goals. There were turnovers. There were safeties. There was disruption, and that's what you want to see, especially when you're going into this this fall with such high expectations and maybe an offensive group that has some things to prove still. Yeah. It, it, it's really interesting because – and this is the other part of this too is we didn't even really see that defense at full force. You know what I mean? There were so many guys out on Saturday that even with the personnel relatively limited, Alex Grinch's group was still able to make highlight reel plays – or stop drives that otherwise would have been promising a couple of years ago. If you can get that into the 2021 season and elevate it to another level, I mean, I don't know what the the ceiling is for this group, but I think the defense right now is proving that whatever may happen, it is capable of carrying the team to those aspirations that it has. Yeah, look, I, I think uh, for me, it's one of the best defenses in college football, and it starts on on the line of scrimmage. Uh, you mentioned the word disruption. I mean, that's that's what they've always been lacking, and because there's dis disruption, it makes the linebackers better. It makes the secondary better. Uh, you don't have to cover for as long. I mean, it, it just the whole thing works so much better from the point of attack where you have those guys disrupting the line of scrimmage and and for years it felt like they were the nail and finally it feels like they're the hammer right they're the one that's forcing the action I would say this if I have any question marks it's just simply the absence of Ronnie Perkins and really what he meant when he got back a year ago I, I thought that they were headed in the right direction anyway and it really felt like for the majority of that Texas game until the the last half of the fourth quarter in the overtimes they looked outstanding and I thought Isaiah Thomas was the best defensive lineman in the conference until Ronnie Perkins got back, and then Ronnie Perkins kind of took over uh, that role. But again, I, I think that they were headed in the right direction. I think they were on track to become a really good defense. But Ronnie Perkins got back, and it just sped up the process. And it was like, okay, they've arrived. They are here. This group is is really dominant up front. 
with his absence, I, again, that would be my only question. Is there is there any step, even if it's a small step, is there any step back uh, in trying to fill that role? Or, again, you're, you get Winfrey back, you get Isaiah Thomas back, you have Nick Benito back as far as an edge rush guy. I, I think they're going to be just fine. But just trying to, like, throw out a, you know, a what-if type scenario. Um, you know, Jalen Redmond comes back, and he's probably the guy that I would assume steps into that role. And, uh, you know, I think he could play that role, but... I, I think that defensive line, once again, is going to be completely dominant, completely disruptive, and like I said, make make the back seven's job considerably easier than it's been in the past. It's really interesting because when you think about it, just how good that Oklahoma defensive line was a year ago without this spring period, like really think about that for a second. How are they so good up front <laughs> right. without having any spring ball to prepare? I mean, it... it, it for them to elevate themselves in season the way that they did, especially obviously with the, the energy that Ronnie Perkins provided, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about. And that's why I'm I'm not necessarily worried. If I were to give you a position group that I'm worried about on that defense, I don't think I have a single question about the defensive line because, yes, losing Ronnie Perkins hurts a lot because of the, the production and impact thing. He provides both. But Jalen Redmond comes in as a guy who not too long ago led the team in sacks and was third in tackles for loss. Isaiah Thomas might be, again, one of the best defensive linemen in the conference, if not the country. And we've seen the statistics. Nick Benito is arguably one of the top pass rushers in all of college football. Like, throw out the Big 12 for a second. He is one of the best at pursuing the passer that we have in the game today. So you combine all that, and then you say, okay, Perrion Winfrey was a little slow to start. But he didn't have spring ball. Like, he didn't have that time to prepare for the Division I FBS level. Well, now he has had it. And now he's going to have Josh Ellison, who looked pretty solid on Saturday. I mean, Isaiah Coe is coming in as another Juco kind of defensive tackle who could contribute in a meaningful way. Corey Roberson, Kelly. There's just a number of options on that defensive line. And so not only do they have the star power, I think, to – cover up the lack of a Ronnie Perkins, but there's depth and there hasn't always been depth. I mean, remember how DJ Ward a couple of years ago was playing almost every single snap in the Rose bowl. Like I thought he was a pretty good player, but I was like, can we get this guy some red? Yeah. Now they have, they can throw out like eight, nine, 10 guys and feel comfortable with whoever is on the front four. I think that's really interesting. Clayton Smith is a guy who could sub in for a Nick Benito and, I mean, wow. I I don't know how you have an option like that at a Jack Backer position. But, again, that's another newcomer that's only going to get better in the offseason and give you another option up front. So I'm not really worried about the defensive line at all, honestly, because I think Isaiah Thomas is a star. I think Nick Benito is a star. I think Jalen Redman is going to back to that star status. And all those other dudes have another period of development for this group to gel. And at the end of the day – I think it's going to be really fascinating to see them become, a, yet again, a position group that we talk about as one of the best in college football. I will say this, though, to end, and I would be interested in your feedback as we're talking like position groups of concern. I still think there's a little bit of a question mark for me in terms of the defensive backfield. Is that fair to say? See, I, I, I for me, it's probably more the linebacker group than the defensive backs. Mm-hmm. And again... The, the defensive backs aren't in the same situation that the groups in the past have been in. You know, it's it, their job is considerably easier because of all those group, those guys we just talked about. But 
Right. Like, I look at just the overall, like, size and athleticism of, you know, obviously Jaden Davis at this point has played quite a bit of football for Oklahoma, but, like, DJ Graham is a really exciting player. You know, we saw Woody Washington flash a year ago, uh, Jeremiah Cradell, um, Billy Bowman, like, you know, playing that slot corner role, which I think is going to be a massive upgrade from what they've been playing the last couple of seasons. Um, and, and, look, we're talking about a guy that's a true freshman as well, but I really like this secondary group, and it's it's crazy because last year – that group really overachieved. And finally, we started seeing takeaways. And, you know, Trey Norwood just seemed to be in the right place consistently a year ago. Trey Brown seemed like he took massive steps in the right direction. He had played a lot of football and finally kind of stepped into the role that Oklahoma was asking him to. Uh, but I'm, I'm just not super concerned because I just I look at the bodies individually. I look at the, the size and athleticism and just what's capable, and I know it, there's a lot of inexperience there, but, I, man, I, I just think that group's potential is off the charts. You know what they remind me a lot of right now? The OU receiver room. I mean, I think that they're yeah, that's almost fair. I, like there, There's a bunch of really good players in that room right now. But... Trey Brown leaving? I mean, that's the mayor of Arlington, Texas. So <laughs> how do you replace that guy who's helped you win Big 12 championships year in and year out? I also think Trey Norwood's value from both a production and versatility perspective is completely overlooked. Like, this guy could play safety, corner, nickel. He at one point led the nation in interceptions, and now he's gone. Yeah. So you don't have that like safety blanket option who's going to produce wherever he's plugged. You know what I mean? So they lose a lot of star power in the back end. And, and again, there's a lot of exciting young players that you mentioned. And then there's like a Justin Harrington who had a ton of buzz yeah. last time around and then goes down with an injury. So we're waiting to see what he is. There's a lot of tools to utilize. But like Who's going to be that main guy? Just like we talked about in the receiver room. Like, who's going to be the Trey Brown right. that makes plays in a championship setting? Who's going to be the Trey Norwood that gets you those big-time interceptions in crucial moments of games? Like, they need those kind of players right now. And while I think they have the, the guys to find, I don't know that there is an established presence there right now. So that's why I look at the defensive back group very similar to the receivers, is there's a lot of really good players, but who's that great one? Who's the guy that's going to be the name we're all talking about after a big time game in the fall? Yeah, no, that's that's completely fair. Um, I I just there are so many bodies there that again it's it's crazy that we're talking about depth defensively anywhere. But uh, <laughs> remember a year ago when or was it two years ago? Yeah, two years ago when it was like they had two safeties and that was it. And if one of those guys got hurt, they were going to have to limp all over the football field for eighty snaps a game. Like it was there was nothing else there and. Like, you know, those guys are still around, by the way. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, there's just so much depth, so much athleticism. I love what they've done on the back end of that group. And, and you know, with, I, I think it's probably fair to say the same thing with the linebackers. Um, I just, I don't know, I don't feel like there's as many guys I'm excited about at that position as there are in the secondary, so. It makes a lot of sense. And, and the other part of this, too, is I think real quick on the secondary, like Woody Washington has star potential. I think Jeremiah Cradell is right there. I think Jaden Davis could be a star. Like there's a lot of guys who could really be all-conference caliber players. They just have to go and prove it. And right. I think they would tell you the same thing. The linebacker group, though, I also look at this group as, as a, a unit that 
there's a lot of guys who could be stars, in my opinion. Like, David Uwebu, when's the last time that Oklahoma had a linebacker at, like, 6'4", 250, who could go sideline to sideline with anybody? I don't know. Kenneth Murray? That, that's true. I mean, he's probably right in there, right? Uh, then you have Caleb Kelly, who gets to go play football again. I'm really excited about what he can provide. The, I think everyone forgets that the last time something like this happened, Caleb Kelly went down with a major injury. He comes back in the fall, like late in the year, and immediately is thrust into the Oklahoma State game and the Big 12 championship as one of the three linebackers yeah. that they were utilizing at the time. And guess what? He made a ton of plays. So I think just having Caleb Kelly back, we can sit here and argue about whether or not he can be that star that we're talking about. But I think just his knowledge and his playmaking ability is proven. So that gives you that safety blanket option, in my opinion, at linebacker with the high ceiling kind of guy in David Uwebu. Brian Osamoa is fascinating. I think Shane Witter is a guy you've heard a ton of buzzwords about in camp for a reason. He's one of those guys that if you point He's going to where you pointed at 110 miles per hour. Now, whether that's good or bad at linebacker, <laughs> we'll find out. But at the same time, like, oh, you didn't have those guys who would get to the sideline in the blink of an eye at the linebacker position and go make the tackle before anything catastrophic could happen. So this is another position group that's really fascinating because I think that there are tools here, but they just have to go and prove themselves. Like Brian Osamoa had one of his best games of his OU football career in the Cotton Bowl. People forget that. And then obviously he didn't he wasn't able to do much in the spring game, so we're kind of easy to forget him. Caleb Kelly, again, veteran presence. David Uwebu, that dude tossed a redshirt senior wide receiver at Florida like he was a ragdoll. Like there there are dudes in this linebacker room, but they just go have to go prove themselves and they have to show that they've taken that next step in terms of development. Because a lot of them, again, are younger guys who maybe have just now started to see a lot of playing time. And I think at the end of the day, just because the athletic freaks or the, the types of minds or body types that are in that linebacker room, I have a lot of confidence in them, to be quite honest, going into the fall. Yeah. Uh, look, it's, I mean, the bottom line is this defensively, I, I think once again, they're going to be as good as they were a year ago. I'm, I'm not overly concerned about any of the, you know, the uh, playing devil's advocate type scenarios that we just discussed, but um, I, I expectations are at an all-time high and and the great thing is I mean if these guys don't play well they're going to feel the heat immediately because we haven't I mean even though the Baker teams were great offensively the Kyler team was great offensively I don't think the fan base ever completely bought into hey this team could win it all because you know it, a complete liability on the other side of the the football whereas with this year it just feels like both of these units have the potential to be top five top ten units in college football, and, you know, it's it's kind of a perfect storm, and we talked about this at the top. Alabama has to change quarterbacks. Clemson has to change quarterbacks. Ohio State has to change quarterbacks. Not that there aren't talented guys there, but look, you saw, you saw you know, the, the struggles that Spencer Rattler went through early in the season. Right. To say that any of those teams couldn't have those same hiccups at that position, um, you know, that's it, it definitely could happen. So Oklahoma's just positioned, I think, not only – when you look at the landscape of everything else in college football, but within their own program, it's just a perfect storm. I mean, it's the highway is there to go do something that hasn't been done in now, what, 21 years? It's been forever, seemingly. And you, you brought up exactly the point that I brought up is that, and I'm going to label, I'm gonna, I've been using the same phrase that I utilized last year 
in regards to Oklahoma and the Big 12 Conference. If not now, when? Like, if you don't do it now, if you don't go win a national championship, similar to how if the Big 12 Conference and its host of teams was unable to dethrone Oklahoma with a fresh quarterback, like, when are you going to do it? Because <laughs> you, you, you just talked about it. Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame. I mean, the, all of these teams that are in the college football playoff are starting anew at that signal caller position. And while, like, I've seen DJ Uyunglele in person. I've seen Bryce Young in person. I know what they are from a talent perspective. We know that they, those teams know exactly what Oklahoma knows. You're getting every team's best shot at the end of the day. And if you're a young quarterback or you're throwing a, an inexperienced guy out there, he may not necessarily know how to handle the heat from week to week to week to week. And that's why Oklahoma was beaten early in the season because they got KSU's best punch, they got Iowa State's best punch, and, and they didn't know how to react. Well, that could happen in the cases of those other situations. And again, Georgia, they have a guy. North Carolina has a guy. But there are still some question marks with those squads. So if you, if not now, with the talent that you have on each side of the ball, yeah. when is Oklahoma going to win a national championship? I mean, that's a realistic question to ask. Because let me tell you something, man. Go look at the recruiting rankings on 24-7 Sports or wherever you want to go look. Ohio State's not going away anytime soon. I mean, Alabama sure as hell is not fading anytime soon. They just brought in the greatest recruiting class on paper we have ever seen in recruiting rankings history. The same thing can be said about Clemson, who is recruiting at a higher level than they have ever been before. And by the way, that team's been winning national championships with kind of okay recruiting. So yeah. th this is the moment. Like, this is a defining time period for Lincoln Riley and the Oklahoma football program. Because again, and I'm going to say it, so many times this summer and into the fall. If not now, when is it going to happen? Yeah, I, yeah, I think I think uh, everybody agrees with that sentiment. I mean, it's again the stars are aligned for it to to happen. You've improved everywhere you need to improve. You have uh, now experience at the most important position on the field, and everybody else is searching for some of the things that you have in place. So. Yeah, I it, this is uh, this is going to be an awesome year. Uh, again, maybe it's one of those years where. Um, you know, they, they feel the expectation or I, I don't know, we'll see how it plays out, but the expectation is there and I, I'm sure they have to know what a, what a position they're in. So, um, yeah, this is really the first time I think, you know, Lincoln Riley's been a favorite in this conference every year. And, and I don't think that's something that he feels the pressure from, but I, I don't know that we've ever seen him in this position where, you know, arguably in college football, he could be viewed as the favorite by some. So that maybe that's that's the angle that uh, that we need to focus on a little bit. But but from a personnel standpoint, from a roster standpoint, uh, it's it's there. It's there. It's there for the taking. So Barrett Salia, CBS Sports, came out with that article. I'm sure you saw it. And he talked about head coaches in college football that are under the most pressure. And Lincoln Riley was mentioned. And I saw on my Twitter feed, everyone grabbed the the pitchforks and the torches and just storm the castle, right? Like, what the hell are you saying? But if you really think about it, like, is it that ridiculous of a take? Like, no, he's not facing job pressure. Yeah. That dude is going to be around at Oklahoma unless something catastrophic were to happen for a long time. Right. But when you talk about right now, he's got talent on both sides of the ball that is national championship worthy. He has a college football landscape where the picture is now posing 
you are the team with the most experience and talent returning, especially at the quarterback position. He also has in the back of his head, like, hey, my defensive coordinator who has put me in this conversation might not be around for too much longer. So, like, is it that crazy to say that this might be some of the most pressure Lincoln Riley has faced in his entire coaching career? Not at all. Like, he's got to go get it done right now. Because if he doesn't, when is he ever going to be able to dethrone Nick Saban or Dabo Swinney or some of the other top head coaches in college football that he's both competing against and recruiting against? Like, this is the time that Lincoln Riley can set him up to be one of those Ryan Day types or Nick Saban types or Dabo Swinney types. And if he doesn't do it, then that's a massive letdown. And I think it's safe to say that he knows that pressure is there. I, I think people hear the word pressure and the first, probably they think hot seat and they think consequences are the first two things that come to mind. And, exactly. there, you know, if Lincoln Riley loses a couple games this year, there are no consequences. If Lincoln Riley loses a couple games this year, he is not on the hot seat. But the the, the statement about pressure is 100% true. And, you, you know, you said, if not now, when? Um Oklahoma is not going to get rid of Lincoln Riley if he doesn't win a championship this year. Oklahoma is not going to get rid of Lincoln Riley if he doesn't win the Big 12. It would be massively disappointing if Oklahoma didn't win the Big 12 this year. But they're not going to get rid of their head coach if it goes that way. So, yeah, I think it's completely fair to say pressure. But if you turn that into if that, you know, the consequence of that being a hot seat, then it then it becomes ridiculous. Exactly. Like, you have to understand that in every word in the English dictionary, there's seemingly multiple meanings that can be applied. So your first perception of something may not necessarily be what it actually is. Are there some coaches who face pressure in terms of their job status? Absolutely. I mean, like, let me go ahead and throw out Scott Frost, who Oklahoma is going to play. He probably doesn't want to see Oklahoma come this year because that might start the dominoes to fall. You know what I mean? But at the same time, like, that guy's facing a different pressure than the dude who's across the sidelines in Lincoln Riley, who right now has national championship or bust in his head, not just because of who he has on his sideline, but who everyone else has on the other side, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, he's facing a ton of pressure, man. Like, let's just call it what it is. He's got to go win the big one. I mean, they still have yet to win a college football semifinal under him. So like, He's got to go accomplish that hurdle, too. Like, just get the first game done and then go win the national championship if you can. If he doesn't do either of those things, let alone the Big 12 championship that you talked about, I think this is going to be a massive letdown, and it's going to be something that we talk about, honestly, for a number of years as we see kind of a return to norm with the Alabama, Clemson's, Ohio State, Georgia's of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've won this conference multiple times with less than they have this year. Uh, and, you know, again, they, they've been to the playoff. It, it's time to take that next step. And, you know, if, if you make it to another playoff, you lose another semifinal to an Alabama team that, you know, reloads and is is great, then so be it. I mean, I, I don't think that's a disappointment. But I think the bare minimum is you are back in that situation and anything less would be, I, I think, catastrophic. Um, again, that doesn't mean hot seat. That doesn't mean that there are consequences as far as him getting fired or, or even like that conversation begins. Certainly there will be fans that start that conversation, but that's not realistic. I mean, I have a guy right now that every time Oklahoma's played for the last year is, is ready for Lincoln Riley to, if, if they don't score a touchdown on every drive, it's like, get this guy out of here. He's a complete bum. And that's, you know, that's a result of being great. That's a result of the highest expectations. So they've put themselves in this position 
Uh, it's time to capitalize. And yeah, I, I mean, catastrophic, I think, if, if they don't win the conference. But yeah, bare minimum, back in the CFP. But I, I, I do think that, uh, I, 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 again, it's one of those things where I, I don't know, like, if you don't win it, nothing really happens. So maybe from that regard, people say, well, there is no pressure. Maybe that's the perspective that people say that from. But I mean, you've got it. You've got to get it done. If you're gonna get it done, you've got to get this. is This is the time where the stars have aligned. I just see it as I think we would all agree as logical college football consumers that Lincoln Riley is up there with some of the top head coaches in college football right now. I think we'd also all agree that Oklahoma is a brand that is comparative to all those other big name programs that consistently make the playoff. Yeah. Your Alabama's, Ohio State, Clemson's. But I also do think that at the end of the day, there is kind of a view of Oklahoma being that second tier right now behind those other big names that we talk about who have gone and gotten it done. And the pressure here is this might be his best opportunity to prove in Lincoln Riley that he is in that conversation with Dabo and Nick Saban and, and all those guys who have accomplished the highest level. This is Oklahoma's opportunity to go prove that it is the blue blood, the championship caliber contender year in and year out that we always talk about it being. And if it is not proven, then we're just going to keep having this conversation years and years and years as Alabama and Clemson get back to winning the national title. So that's why, to me, there is a ton of pressure because at the end of the day, how many more seasons are we going to have this talk? Like, can Oklahoma go finally get it done? If he doesn't go do it, then I just see this being a conversation for the foreseeable future for an undetermined timetable until we get back to this rare situation where he might have the best talent team and situation available to him in quite some time. Yeah. All right, let's switch gears. Uh, the NFL draft is Thursday night. I am a draft geek. I cannot wait for this thing. Uh, we share a favorite team. The Dallas Cowboys are selecting 10. Let me just start with this. What are you hoping happens on Thursday night for the Dallas Cowboys? <laughs> I'm hoping that Penny Sewell falls somehow to the 10th spot and you go get out one of the best draft prospects I think I've seen in a while. I freaking love that guy. I think he's a monster. And if you were to somehow fall to Dallas... I don't think you're prepared for how quickly I will enter that live shot of Jerry Jones. I'm busting down the door. I don't think you guys are ready for how quickly I will be in his war room if Penny Sewell is available at number 10. That's not going to happen. I would love to see it happen. But at the end of the day, I think we're all being realistic about this. And so I would like to see Dallas just go out and address that defense. But we're going to dive into all that, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. All right, I'm going to give you my my dream scenario. Uh, and look, about a month ago, I think it was a small percentage chance, but I thought it was a, at least possible. Now I don't think there's any chance. But Kyle Pitts, to me, is the dream scenario for the Cowboys. And, you know, there's been a lot of smoke over the last month that they're completely infatuated with him, that even they might consider trading up for him. I think that's insane. There's no way they're, they need so much. There's no way they're ever going to give up the amount of draft picks it would cost to move up and get Kyle Pitts. So, but I think it's one of those things where if he's there at 10, it's just a no brainer. You go get a generational best tight end. I think I've ever seen play college football uh, guy and, and, you know, worry about draft needs the rest of the way, but Kyle Pitts is just that good. So uh, Kyle Pitts is my dream scenario 
And a lot of that is because I don't think there is an Aaron Donald defensive lineman. I, I don't think there is a J.J. Watt or, you know, Vaughn Miller or Khalil Mack type edge rush guy in this draft. Uh, so while, you know, secondary players are important, at 10, I I don't know. For me, the value isn't there to take a, a Patrick Sertan the second at 10 if, if a guy like Kyle Pitts is available. So that's first. Secondly, I would say if we start talking about what is possible, you mentioned Sewell. I look, is that probable? No. Is it possible? I think it is possible. I mean, if we consider five quarterbacks potentially going before the Cowboys select at 10, um, there are three more receivers available. There's Kyle Pitts out there. I mean, there is, I think, a realistic scenario where Panay Sewell potentially is available at number 10. So what becomes my path as far as what I want to see most? I've kind of gone back and forth on this a little bit, but I think I land on Sewell would be the next option and then Rashawn Slater. And then if Rashawn Slater's gone, then I think we're talking about Sertan, J.C. Horn, or a trade down. Uh, but the, the, the Sewell-Slater conversation is interesting to me because we've heard that the tackles are healthy. We've heard that Tyron Smith and Lyle Collins are ready to play a full season. Whether you want to believe that or not, that's a different story. I think if you go with Rashawn Slater, though, you're getting a guy that's going to fit in at four different positions. And look, nobody gets through an entire season unblemished. So to have a guy like that that can potentially play tackle, guard, wherever you end up needing him because somebody got hurt helps you immediately. Now, if we're talking about the next 10 years, Sewell is just a dominant left tackle for a decade, potentially. So I think I land on Sewell just because you have to plan for more than just a year, but the Cowboys are built to win today. And I, you know, I don't think Rashawn Slater's out of the question there as far as just a guy that potentially helps you in more ways in 2021 to potentially win a Super Bowl. Well, the bottom line is we should never see two undrafted free agent tackles playing for the Dallas Cowboys ever again. Ever. Like, I don't want to see that ever on my television ever because I was so defeated going into every Dallas Cowboys football game, knowing damn well that neither of those dudes on either side were blocking anybody. It just wasn't going to happen, especially if you face an elite-level pass rusher. I mean, Dallas's offense was over. So I think you bring up a great point in that finding somebody who can just be a plug-and-play type of guy on the offensive line is incredibly valuable because you mentioned it. Whether or not you want to believe that Tyron Smith, Lyle Collins, all those dudes are healthy – which I don't, you got to have an option in case they aren't. And Dallas did not have that a season ago. I think that both Sewell and Rashawn Slater as that left guard would be ridiculous. I mean, like it wasn't too long ago that I thought Lyle Collins at left guard was one of the best guards I'd seen in football. Like people forget how damn good he yeah. was on that left side. Now, obviously he moved to right tackle out of necessity and ceiling and all things like that. But I, We've seen when Dallas has a star left guard with these host of other talents on that offensive line, what it can accomplish. And friendly reminder, the guy you paid a ton of money in the backfield, he's still got a little bit of a leg issue that you kind of have to keep in the back of your head, right? So keeping him upright, ideal to say the least. I would love to see an offensive lineman here at 10. I, I, either one of those two, again, if Sewell is available – I am sitting next to Jerry Jones faster than you can ever believe, and his security guards will not be prepared for the storm that is Colin Kennedy. But at the same time, 
Like if either one of those two is there, you have to really consider, number one, how valuable the line of scrimmage is. Number two, the varying aspects that you're dealing with in terms of depth up front, health situations, and quarterback that you have to protect. I would just love to have one of those two guys fall at 10. And I think you bring up another point, which I'm sure we'll dive into, the defensive back situation. At the end of the day, I don't really care how good you are at DB. If I can go get myself a, a potential Pro Bowl caliber offensive lineman, I'm going to do that at the end of the day. Agreed. Completely agree. Let me ask you this. Do you think it would be out of the question if they, do, if they took Sewell? Because you talked about Collins and the left guard situation. If Sewell's there, I know they paid... Lyle Collins tackle money, but is it crazy to put him back at guard and put Sewell on the right side of tackle? I keep saying this. Like, I think Lyle Collins is an athletic freak that at the guard spot, it might be even better than what he is as a tackle. Like, go back at home, if you're listening to this, go watch film on Lyle Collins at the left guard spot. You're going to see this guy pulling, running like 45 yards down the field at full pace keeping with the running back and running over like two or three guys. Like that's what he did week in and week out at the left guard spot. And when I was sad, I was really sad to see him move to right tackle because I thought there was just an incredibly higher ceiling as him as an athletic interior pass pro and run block type. But I do think that either number one, Sewell gives you an immediate tackle option on both sides. And I honestly wouldn't put it past him to play guard either because again, he's one of the most athletic offensive linemen we've seen on paper going through the draft process. So getting someone like him, nothing's out of the question. That's just what I've been saying. Like Lyle Collins, if he feels comfortable taking tackle money but playing guard, by all means, go for it. If Sewell is confident in his ability to immediately establish himself at that left guard position, throw him in there. Same thing can be said for Slater. But at the end of the day, we just have to make sure we never see just the the absolute mess that was the Dallas Cowboys offensive line a season ago. Yeah. Uh, I never want to see that again if the team is healthy. I, I I would say this. After Dak got hurt a year ago, I I was all in on the undrafted tackles because I, I went into tank mode in like week five. I mean, I know a lot of people down the stretch were holding out hope that Dallas would win the win the division and, and get a playoff spot. But the realistic aspect for me was they're not going to win in the playoffs and you're just going to have a lower draft pick. Just lose the rest of the way. Get a good draft pick. Try and get a difference maker. And let's rebuild this thing in 2021 and not just be there for show on the first week of the NFL playoffs and then everybody makes fun of you getting your ass kicked uh, on national television. So, uh, yeah, I, I was all in down the stretch with with the offensive line that they were using because I was hashtag tank, baby. Uh, give me your thoughts on these corners, though, because I think realistically – if, if there's not a trade-down situation, we're probably talking about Patrick Sertan II and J.C. Horn being the two players that Dallas is deciding between at number 10. Obviously, at the beginning of this process, Caleb Farley was in this discussion. He opted out in 2020. There are the back issues. I think Dallas has completely dismissed him from the, from the conversation at number 10, at least. Maybe later, if he were to still be there. But um, thoughts on Sertan and Horn and how you view not only their talents, but their fit with what Dallas wants to do. Because I think that's an interesting storyline with who they take here. It's exactly something I'm going to dive into. But I'm going to start with J.C. Horn. I think when you look at the two, J.C. Horn probably has the higher ceiling in terms of future stardom. Like, this guy is an athletic, aggressive, bulldog type on the outside with great length. He has that press man coverage capability. 
he's an aggressive player that gives you that that big playability, right? Now, the other part of this, though, is that while everyone has brought up that J.C. Horn has all these star-type traits, or Kyle Pitts has mentioned that he's the hardest corner he's ever gone against. P.S., they're friends. Of course he's going to say that, people. I look at Pat Sertain as the high-floor guy. And I think when you talk about where Dallas is, you mentioned it. They have the capability to win right now. And the other part of this, too, though, is that they're going through a change of defensive coordinator. And I, I would be a lot more comfortable taking a J.C. Horn type if I were a little bit more established in my defensive unit, right? But this guy's coming from a place that made a coaching change for a reason. Like, this guy wasn't on necessarily a great football team. He already has kind of had some struggles with his actual coaching, so I don't know that I want to go take a risk on a guy that has that really high ceiling but has a really low floor, especially when I have to go get a new defensive coordinator situated with a secondary that's pretty questionable. That's why I look at Sertain and I say he's coming from a program that has proven coaching ability. He has six foot two height. He has that wingspan. He has press man capabilities, which is what Dan Quinn wants to do. But he also knows what's going on. And he's not going to take a lot of coaching to understand what's going on. He might honestly be able to come in and help, right? Like this guy's coming from a place that we view as close to the NFL as possible in college football, right? So he has an understanding of everything that you want at corner. He has an understanding of what it takes to be great. I mean, hell, he's the son of a former pro bowler, right? Yeah. So Oh, yeah, that, both these guys are, right? Yeah, so like I, I, I think there's just – a lot of differences in terms of not just who they are as players, but that what they would be coming into in that Dallas Cowboys locker room. I think it's imperative that you find a guy for Dan Quinn as he makes this transition who just plugs in plays and gives you a solid, consistent option as Dallas tries to capitalize on a window that we perceive is there, right? And in order to do so, I need a safety blanket. I need a consistent presence. I need someone who has maybe a Pro Bowl, Pro Bowl ceiling, but at least I know he's going to be able to give me quality starts on the outside. So that's why I lean certain in this pair. I'm not going to complain with either one, but I just think there's something to be said about someone who can just immediately step in in a change of coordinator situation, and he's going to know exactly what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's funny because these guys are very similar in a lot of ways, but also completely opposite. Like, yeah. You mentioned like that, just the overall skill set. I'm with you. I think the floor for for Sertan is is I mean consistent NFL starter. Like I, I just I don't see him being a miss guy. Whereas I think you could miss with JC Horn, but yes. like when you watch the two guys, JC Horn just looks like there's so much more explosiveness within his game, and the wow factor is there. They're both. I mean, they're both tested off the charts. Both these guys are incredibly athletes. It just feels like. I think for me, Sertan just feels a little more stiff overall, whereas there's just that more fluid, like, explosion from J.C. Horn. But, you know, Sertan probably also a little bit better in the run game. Um, I, I'm with you. I think if, if you're given the choice for me at Sertan, um, Horn would, would be something that I would be totally okay with if that's the route they went. But uh, I, I, I don't the, – the fit for me also, I think, with Horn doesn't feel – as natural to Dan Quinn's defenses, or at least what we've seen from Dan Quinn's defenses in the past as Sertan would. 
so a couple of things here. I almost liken them, and again, I know I'm throwing out some pretty crazy like similarities here. I almost liken them to an Eric Gray or a Kennedy Brooks. Like in Pat Sertain, I yeah. know I'm getting my, yep. my eight yards that looks like four, right? I, yep. I know I'm getting that consistency, the production. It's going to be there. In J.C. Horn, like I know that I'm going to get star power ability. I know I'm getting big plays and flash plays and highlight reels on SportsCenter or whatever. But I also know that he may not necessarily be coming from the greatest situation, and he might need a little bit of grooming in a new location. So I think the other part of this that's fascinating to me is some of the pro comparisons that have been made. And a lot of the pro comparisons, it's really on it, like interesting to me. A lot of the pro comparisons for J.C. Horn haven't necessarily been like big name guys. It's like Chris Harris or whoever else. I'd have to go back through. But I, I read a lot of people saying like – J.C. Horn is this guy. And after I read that, okay, I say, okay, well, was that guy necessarily a star player in the NFL? I don't know that I can say that. I can say this, though, that on NFL.com, if you pull up the pro comparison for Pat Sertain II, his pro comparison is Namdi Asimov. Now, anyone who knows yeah, football. Yeah, I like that. If anyone who knows football who knows Namdi Asimov knows that if you have a chance to go get that guy, you do it without question. Because Namdi Asimov yeah. – was a different level corner for the years that he played in the league. So that's why I also see this as, okay, yeah, J.C. Horn has star player potential, but if I can get a potential star who I know is consistent at the very least, that's why I lean Sertain's direction for the, for the time being. You want my J.C. Horn comp? Let's do it. Patrick Peterson. Oh, that's good, too. They're very, very similar. Very similar. Like I, 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 it's crazy to me. I, I don't. I haven't seen that once. And I, like, again, I'm not saying he's the same player. There, there's certainly differences. But when I watch him play, especially when he's having those big moments, like we talked about, I see Patrick Peterson there. And, and it's really interesting you make that comparison because Patrick Peterson has played in a defensive system at times where he has safeties behind him who are a little bit more comfortable being box guys, right? Or they're, they're a little bit more comfortable being those playmakers around the line of scrimmage or in the slot. And so a lot of times he's put on an island. And that's why the one pro that I give J.C. Horn is I feel a lot more comfortable with him running about 30 yards on his own than I do a Pat Sertain. And let's be honest yeah. here, too. They're going to be asked to do that because Dan Quinn likes those playmaking safeties and they have a guy now who's coming in like a Keanu Neal that Dallas signed that – I mean, that dude's a big-time playmaker in the box. Do I, I love him as a, a cover safety? Maybe not necessarily. And that's why I think whoever is this corner that's selected is going to have to be expected to play on an island a lot. And so in that respect, while I do feel like Sertain's going to be able to be that consistent presence on the outside – I don't know that you feel like he can be a star on an island 30, 40 yards down the field to the level that a one J.C. Horn can be. And that's that's one of the other fascinating aspects of this argument. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, let me throw out a couple hypotheticals for you as far as this 10th pick goes. Again, I don't think this is probable, but just for the sake of, of having the conversation about it. What if Justin Fields is on the board at 10? Why did you do this? Um, 
if Justin Fields is on the board at 10. Well, and we had the conversation about, because I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, all the Justin Fields slander throughout this entire process to me has been just mind-blowing. Like, shut up. I'm sure, I'm sure we can go on a rant on yeah. that here in a little bit after this specific hypothetical, because I would love to dive into that situation. I think it's absolutely ridiculous what the NFL world is doing to that dude. But if he's available at 10... It might be a hot take, but I, I wouldn't take it. I would let him slide because I just paid my guy all that money. And I know that while I paid him a ton, because of some of the injury concerns and things like that, he may not necessarily be able to maximize his potential under that new deal without some help. And so for those reasons, and again, considering the fact that we perceive this to be a window of opportunity for Dallas yeah. – and I don't know how many times they're going to be picking in the top 10 moving forward. I would go and find myself a guy who can go start for my squad right now. I'll worry about the quarterback situation later if Dak Prescott just looks like garbage yeah. in year one of this new deal. But right now I know that I have him on a high price tag, and i got to make him look like he's worth all that money. So I, I, just, I wouldn't do it, and I hate saying that. I'm a— uh... I think I'm probably unique in this way that I would seriously consider pulling the trigger on Justin Fields, not because you need him, not because I don't like Dak Prescott. Uh, in fact, like when, when Dallas made the move from Tony Romo to Dak Prescott, I was at the front of the, the parade. I mean, I was, I was all in. Uh, and I've been a Dak Prescott believer since the beginning. Uh, I, I like the fact that they paid him. I like that he's their franchise quarterback. I, I, I think he's one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. I argue with people all the time that he's a top 10 quarterback in the NFL. He's everything you want from a leader off the field. I mean, it's just the perfect fit. He is the guy that can handle the spotlight of being the Cowboys quarterback. I do believe, though, that Justin Fields is a generational quarterback, and that's also why it drives me crazy to listen to people pick this guy apart the way that they do. But I think at worst... You're taking a guy at 10 that could potentially become multiple first-round draft picks for you in the future if you decide you don't want to play him. I mean, it's just, like, it's, uh, I, I know you're passing up on potentially getting a guy that helps you win today. I just think what, with what he is and what's possible there, not only are you getting good bang for your buck, and, and again, maybe you move him, uh, maybe you move Dak down the line, and you're going to get something monstrous either way. But uh, to me, that just seems... Like, it would be really hard to pass up. So I'm not saying I would do it for sure, but I would uh, I would be arguing against the people that are saying no just, just so that we at least have that conversation. Let me just put it this way. If Dallas were to pick a Justin Fields to the similar manner that if they were to pick a Kyle Pitts, you don't need him, and it probably doesn't help you win right now, but I'm not going to complain. Like, I, I, I'll be there right there with you defending it because I go. like both of those caliber talents, man. Yeah. They're both once-in-a-generation type guys. And so I, I'm i not going to sit here and be mad if Justin Fields is there at 10 and suddenly we're having a discussion about him being the backup quarterback for a Dallas Cowboys team that probably has another garbage defense yeah. next season. But I, I, look, man, whether it's him or Pitts or any other prospect that you may not necessarily need right now, but you can go get, I, I'm not. I'm not upset. I'm open-minded. Let's put it that way. All right, fair enough. All right, here's the other hypothetical, and I don't think this this is probably more along the lines of, like, let's say they trade down to 15 with the Patriots. I don't think this would be a conversation if they're actually making the pick at 10. But I've been told from a Cowboy source that they absolutely love Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. 
Um, if you remember Dan Quinn's defenses in Atlanta, I, I think they view him as the Deion Jones of of what you know he would be for Dallas if they were to get him. I don't again, I don't think they would do that at ten, but if they move down, that would be a very realistic name. Uh, that I've again, I've been told they absolutely love. I, I think that it takes kind of a unique situation uh, for him when you consider the size. You know, he's not he's not a traditional linebacker. He's more like a box safety type player. But wow. if you have a if you have a plan of how you want to use him, I think he could be a, a really dangerous weapon. So Deion Jones, I love that you brought that name up because he's one of my favorite players in the NFL, and I think he is. A fascinating individual in that he is what you want in your prototypical linebacker today. You want a guy who can cover in space. You want a guy who can go sideline to sideline. You don't need that thumper, downhill, box kind of linebacker anymore, especially at like your mic position. Like you want a guy who can call the shots defensively and then handle his own in coverage. Like let the will linebacker run around and make plays down low. I got to command my back end and front end. And I got to be the man in the middle who's overseeing all the action around me. I think that's exactly the case here. And the other part of this, too, is like, I think Dallas needs to take a linebacker in this draft. Like, it's a real kind of concern for me, considering that we, we have seen the Dallas Cowboys go from one of the best linebacker duos in football to now a group that you're like, I mean, can they even run? Like, are they able to t- chase anybody down? And so that's why, like, whether it's taking a guy like that in the first round or a guy who I really love in Nick Bolton out of Missouri, the linebacker there, like I would take a linebacker in the first couple of rounds if I'm Dallas, to be honest. So long as I address offensive line or or defensive back in the first slash second round, like if I make a trade out and a talent like that is there, or if if I'm picking in the later rounds and someone is available at the linebacker position, I'm making the pick. Because, again, I think that the linebacker group is another position group that Dallas has to take some some real looks at in this draft because I think there are linebackers capable of playing right away. And I think we've seen a real downslide when it comes to two big-name stars at one point at either side of the backer position in Dallas. So I, I think it's another argument that's fascinating. Yeah. If there's a linebacker talent available, do you take him? I say it's at least a discussion. It's a discussion for sure. And and it probably depends on what's available, what's on the board and what linebacker we're talking about. Right. Like I refuse to believe that over the course of one off season, Jalen Smith and LVE just became worse linebackers. Like, I don't think they became worse. I, I think there were a lot of factors at play. Number one, I think the interior of the Dallas defensive line last year was absolute garbage. And if you want to talk like people want to talk about draft needs, I think interior defensive lineman is number one draft need. They've got to improve that. I mean, even before corner, like maybe there isn't the value to do that in the first round, so you're not going to do it. But if you told me you can just address one position this offseason and nothing else, that's the one I'm addressing. Uh, so I think that it gets better on the back end and it gets better for the linebackers if you get something on the interior of that defensive line that doesn't just get completely pushed around. Uh, and and then, look, we, we all heard the talks about the, the scheme a year ago and how difficult it was for the players and, and Mike Nolan to get on the same page. And so I think linebacker is an issue, but I don't think it's just so drastic that I'm, like, ready to move on from the guys they have in place. I would say, though, LVE's injury issues are at a point where you have to have another body simply because it's not a guarantee he's going to be out there. But to me, interior defensive line, if you're able to do anything from that front 
and improve that group, I think it will make the linebackers better. I agree 100%. And that's why I would rather Dallas look at like a Nick Bolton type in the mid-rounds than some other linebackers towards the top of the draft that we're discussing. But again, this is the other great point you brought up. Like the interior defensive line was garbage. And people forget they went out and signed two free agent defensive tackles before the year last year. And neither one of them was on the roster by like mid-season. Right. Like think about how garbage that was. They got Gerald McCoy and, and Dontari Poe. And the next thing you know, GK goes down with an injury. And Dontari, we find out, is just big and slow and can't do anything. Yeah. So, I, look, I know there's talks about GK potentially being re-signed by Dallas this offseason if he can prove that he is healthy and conditioned. And I think that would be a huge signing because I still think that Gerald McCoy can play at the NFL level. But let's say that signing is not made and the free agent class at defensive tackle is relatively weak. I'm there 100%. Like, the interior defensive line in this draft might be right up there with corner in terms of most pressing need on this roster. I would even put it ahead of offensive line, yeah. to be honest. Like, I still feel confident that if you don't make a, a high offensive line pick in the first couple of rounds, like, we talked about Penny Sewell and, and Rashawn Slater. Like, I'm a big Leon Eichenberg guy. Liam Eichenberg out of Notre Dame is, like, exactly yeah. what you want in an NFL offensive lineman. And by the way... Dallas Cowboys fans know a thing or two about an, a Notre Dame offensive lineman who's been pretty good. But, like, let's say you don't pick any of those guys. I still would not be as upset as if you, you went through this draft process and you did not go out and find yourself a potential contributor at the defensive tackle spot in the first at least three rounds. Like, that has to be figured out, and you have to hit on it. Because let's say you get a guy who's kind of a question, maybe a little bit of a project, I think you probably bundled the situation simply because there's no one else who can help him right now in that interior defensive line. Yeah. I, I it, It's highly unlikely they do that in the first round. They'll have a second-round pick and two third-round picks. Like, I wouldn't be mad if you used two of those three second-day picks on interior defensive linemen. And, I mean, there's – you also – I think you have to address both positions as well. Um, like, I, I love Aleem McNeil from uh, NC State – uh, as like the one technique in what Dallas wants to do. And then like if you the three technique, a guy like Jay Tufaley out of USC or Davion Nixon out of Iowa, um, the Anwu Zarike kid out of Washington. Yes. Like I, I, I think there are good values on the interior defensive line in the second and third rounds because nobody likes that position in this draft. Nobody thinks it's it's that good at the top. So I think because nobody thinks it's that good at the top, you're getting good value on you know, the top five guys in this draft, you're going to get them in the second and third rounds. I think the dream situation would be, for me, Pat Sertain round one, if the draft board sorts out, Liam Eikenberg in round two, then Nick Bolton and, like, Levi Awanzarike in round three. If that happens, you can call me up and I will see the most happiest individual on planet Earth. You could tell me anything sad, and I'd still be like, well, yeah. cheer up, silver lining to everything. That would be what I would love to see in this draft process. But again, there's a number of ways the thing could sort out. But I think with those picks that you mentioned, one in round one, one in round two, and two in round three, ideally you address defensive back, offensive line, defensive tackle, and maybe a linebacker in some sort of order yeah. with those picks that you have. If you don't go linebacker, um, I would also love this guy at forty at the forty four pick, Javon Holland from Oregon. Yeah, like every time I I 
watch it, it's just like this. Do- he does everything. He can play box safety. He can play high safety. He can play slot corner. He just he can be a three down defensive back that that no matter what scheme you want to play, no matter what you're lining up against, he has a place on the football field and is going to contribute. Versatility in this league in 2021 is a must have. And to get a versatile safety that isn't just a high safety, that isn't just a box safety, because I think there are a lot of those guys in this draft, uh, to have a guy that can do a little bit of everything, I, I, I think is is just crucial. I think Javon Holland is a really intriguing case because I would also argue that the safety spot at least deserves a look in those first four picks, right? I mean, like, honestly, defensive tackle, corner, safety, linebacker. Like, give me somebody, man. Give me somebody that's going to start from day one. And Javon Holland is a guy that I think could definitely do so, either at safety or at nickel. Like, nickel in the NFL today is to the level of importance as it is in college football. It's a starting position now that, you know, it's it just is. It's a starting position to where you're arguably covering the freakiest player on the other side of the ball. Yes. Like you're probably going up against a six foot five tight end who can run high in the four sixes, or you're going up against a slot receiver who runs fast as hell, and you probably don't have a lot of help catching up with. Yeah. So like if you're the nickel in an NFL defense, you're going up against arguably the best athlete on the field at any given moment, whether he's big as hell or fast as hell. And you have to be ready for any of it. And that's why someone like him or any number of other versatile defensive backs, I think it's a great point. Like, they have to have a guy who you feel comfortable go match up against their best player in the slot, whoever that may be, tight end, wide receiver, and just shut them down. Because we need help, especially given the other defensive backs who are on the field. It's another position to need, man. It's another one. It's crazy to me that in the NFL, we're watching offenses do what they're doing now every Sunday. And like, there's still this idea that nickel corners are sub package guys and not base defense guys. And that like, why, why is it taking so long for people to identify that a nickel corner is one of your best 11 players or should be? I mean, you just mentioned it. Like you want a fifth round pick defending Tyreek Hill in the slot when you're playing Kansas city or having to match up with Travis Kelsey when they flex him out. Like it's, it's mind-blowing to me that people still consider this like a sub-package position when basically everybody in the NFL, it's part of their base. Exactly. Like, I, You hit the nail on the head. If you're the nickel going up against KC, you have to cover Tyreek and Travis Kelsey at the same time. Yeah. Like, you don't get a playoff. So if you're not one of the best players on the field right now, you're getting torched. Like, you're, you're the reason that we're losing the football game. You're not a sub-package guy. You're the guy that's determining the outcome in this outing. So that's why, like, if you're Dallas, you don't have that guy and go lock up George Kittle or, or Debo Samuel. Like you have to have him. You have to go get him right now. And that's another thing that they have to take in consideration with these first four couple of picks. Like they, they got to address a need there. And yeah. I don't know how they're going to sort through it, but it's a fascinating thing to think. about. Yeah. Uh, bottom line is they have a lot of defensive needs that have to be addressed in the first uh, two days of this draft. All right, let's uh, let's get out of here on this one. Uh, we'll go back to the swing back to the Justin Fields thing because this has been sure. just one of the most frustrating things I've listened to from the end of the season until you know now it's finally draft week. But to watch his draft stock take the roller coaster ride that it has from the point that we're at the Big Ten championship game where he didn't play well uh, to the what, five or six touchdown passes, whatever it was against Clemson, to not playing well in the national championship, to 
being completely shredded throughout the scouting process. Um, I, I just, I don't understand what Justin Fields did to a lot of evaluators to be, I think, raked through the coals in a completely different manner than any other quarterback in this draft. I don't think people are grading him the same way they're grading the other guys in this class. So he's what? 20 and two as a college football starter at one of the biggest name institutions we have in the sport. And the only two games that he lost were to the eventual national champions, right? Like, what the hell do you want from him, man? And the other part of this, too, is like, okay, you're going to tell me that Zach Wilson, who faced garbage competition and is not nearly as versatile as Justin Fields, is the choice you make above him? Or you're going to tell me Mac Jones, who had literally every talent available to him on the field, and was at 100% of the time in a better situation than whoever he was facing across from him. Like, we're going to sit here and justify that guy over Justin Fields? Like, I think a lot of this has to do, honestly, with Dwayne Haskins. And I was not a huge Dwayne Haskins guy coming out of the draft. I will give y'all that. He was a a point-and-pass kind of dude in that system. He locked into his target and threw the ball. And while you can get away with that in college, you can't do it in the NFL. Well, that's not Justin Fields. He, he is able to go through progressions. He is able to get outside of the pocket and make plays. The other part of this, too, is I don't give a damn who you're talking about, Zach Wilson or Mac Jones. Like, neither of them can give you that added layer of offensive impact in terms of calling your own number at the quarterback position. Like, whoever drafts this guy gets a dude that they can call just run forward, and they might get a first down out of it. I don't – how do you justify this? I have no idea. And the other part of this too is like for so long, it's been simple. The two have come up together. Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields played in the same state, playing high school ball. They were number one and number two in the state, in the country, in all rankings. They were right there, neck and neck. You favor one over the other. Sure. But when did it become cool to be like, well, I don't know. These two have been here for so long. Let's throw some other names in the mix. Like, to me, it's like, okay, I'm bored of Alabama and Clemson always being in the national championship. So let's just argue for, like, oh, Notre Dame's going to finally win the national championship. Like, don't overthink this, guys. Yeah. These are the two top talents in the draft right now. One of them is going to give you the opportunity, because the other one's not going to be there, to be a versatile passer a playmaker, and a downhill runner. And he's got the body type and durability that is proven to sustain in the NFL. We can't say that about anyone else that's available after him right now to the level that he has proven. And since when did it just become the the matter of fact, like let's just find holes in this guy's game. There aren't very many. They're grasping at straws. They're doing anything they possibly can to find them. And I just think that they're not there. Now, I will say this, too, to wrap up my little rant. Let's say that we think what might happen happens. So it goes Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, and then Mac Jones. By that point, I will have already be losing my mind. But I will also be sitting there and screaming at my television Atlanta to pick him for. Yeah, I think if you're Atlanta, the last time you picked this high in the draft – you picked guys named Matt Ryan and Michael Vick. And Matt Ryan, yeah, you signed him to a long-term extension. But I think we would all agree he's getting a little long-toothed. 
And I don't know how much longer Atlanta has in terms of dealing with him just winning six or seven games every year. Like, you you got to go get your franchise quarterback at some point. And I don't know that Atlanta is going to be able to pick this high with him as their signal caller for the foreseeable future. So in that instance, I should sit here and say to end my rant that in the event he slips, he should slip no further than fourth. If Atlanta picks him or someone else trades up, if he somehow gets to five, this will have been one of the most ridiculous draft processes I will have ever seen in my entirety of watching the sport. I hope he ends up at number two or three, but if he's there at four, that is as far as he should go, and he should be in Atlanta Falcons uniform, and we should be done with this discussion. Preach, brother. Preach. He is, uh, look, I think there's a fair discussion, for me at least. I, like, if I had the number one pick, I would consider Justin Fields. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I would. And I, I'm not in that same camp with Zach Wilson compared to Trevor Lawrence. To me, that's a no-brainer. Now, would I land on Trevor Lawrence? Probably. But I think there's at least a conversation there. And I think he is clearly, at worst, QB2 in this class. It's crazy to me that the Jets have basically already said, like, Zach Wilson's our guy. That's who we're getting. We traded Sam Darnold because we're for sure that this is the guy we want. Uh, There's a report this morning that San Francisco, I think PFF actually put it out, San Francisco has made it known that they are deciding between Mac Jones and Trey Lance. Half of me thinks that this entire process has just been to blow smoke up everyone's ass because everybody completely loves Justin Fields the same way that we do, and nobody, everybody wants to just make it seem like, hey, we're going to pretend we don't like this guy, so maybe he gets to us wherever we're picking. Uh, maybe that's what it is. For the life of me, I can't understand anyone saying that the the short amount, although it's impressive that we've seen from Trey Lance, that that would be the pick over Justin Fields. Same thing with Mac Jones. I mean, are there things I like about both of those guys? Sure. Can you make a case that those guys are first-round picks? Absolutely. Can you make a case that those guys are better NFL players than Justin Fields? I don't think there's even a, a single argument there for me. Uh, and and I would argue the Zach Wilson thing as well, who I also like. Like, I'm not trying to say none of those guys are good. I just don't think he brings nearly the same thing to the table that Justin Fields does. And um Thursday is going to be crazy, man. Like, if, if Atlanta's on the clock and he is there, he's a Georgia guy, that fan base will lose their minds if they don't take their next franchise quarterback. At the end of the day, had Trevor Lawrence not shown this past season that he can make plays with his legs, I think we're legitimately sit, sitting here and talking about Justin Fields being that number one caliber pick. Now Trevor Lawrence has proven that aspect of his game. So the two are now very comparable to the point now to where their strengths that have kind of differentiated them since the time they've come up together. Now put them on an even playing field, but no one is on that same playing field as those two. Yeah. And that is why it is insane to me that we're even entertaining this discussion from some ridiculous NFL draft writers yeah. who think that they know what they're talking about. At the end of the day, watch college football, people. Watch college football. If you love the NFL – probably should tune in on Saturday so you don't look stupid this time of year. Know what you're talking about, and if you did, you know that Justin Fields is as proven and is as talented as we've seen out of the collegiate ranks in quite some time. Yeah, I hope that uh, he lands in, like, I, I'm i almost at the point where I think it's so ridiculous. I hope he lands in San Francisco or Atlanta or a better situation than where he should be, which would be the New York Jets at number two, uh, just so that he has more around him and can produce... Uh, and and kind of you know prove our point I think a little bit more quickly. 
It, it, dude, it is a great point because it's it's now it's like okay, I almost don't want him to go that high because if yeah. we're gonna sit here and talk about him being not very good, well, let's put him in a better situation so that everyone looks terrible when he's out there balling out in a right. better in a better spot, man. Like I, at this point, I'm all in on him going to Atlanta at four. Yeah. I want to see it happen. Give him that opportunity. But again, I would much rather him at least get the due that he's worth. And so if it doesn't happen, it just man, what a headache Thursday night's gonna be. Yeah. Colin, man, this was a lot of fun. We will do it again uh, Thursday night. Obviously, the Cowboys uh, select at 10. So uh, if it's Penny yeah. Sewell, I will be uh, I'll be looking for fireworks down south. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, I'm going to be an absolute bear on Twitter if that goes down. man. no one's the mute buttons are going to be in effect. as Penny <laughs> Sewell goes to the Dallas Cowboys. And again, I will be with Jerry Jones side as soon as he is available on the board, man. Just be ready for that to happen on Thursday night. Fair enough. Always appreciate it, my friend. We'll catch up again soon. Yes, sir. That is Colin Kennedy with OUinsider.com, 24-7 sports covering the Oklahoma Sooners. Always appreciate Colin joining me on the Colby Daniels podcast. We are presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Check out their line of natural medicine products, including Kratom, CBD, and Delta 8. They have products that can help with pain, anxiety, or just an opioid alternative. So check out their line of natural medicine products. Again, visit the website abotanicalcompany.com or give them a call, 405-458-9699. They have a staff dedicated to helping you live a better life. So uh, don't be afraid to ask any questions you may have. Plus, we're saving you 15% when you order online, abotanicalcompany.com. Discount code Colby Show and you save 15% off your online order. Again, abotanicalcompany.com. Everybody have a great day. Stay safe and I will see you tomorrow. Podcast is over.